Well, thanks again for joining us this morning. We are glad you're here on the last Sunday of 2021. Uh, It has been a crazy year. Amen. (laughs) And uh, we are prepared for 2022. And whatever it comes, we will still be the church. We will still be God's people. We'll still be marching forward, right? All right. Oftentimes, when we think about the incarnation of Christ, we think primarily in terms of the past. Just think of the way that we say it sometimes. The Son of God became a man, past tense. Or the Son of God took on flesh. We rightly speak of the incarnation as a historic fact. God became a man. And yet, we must be careful not to make it a merely historic fact. To speak of it as something that simply happened in the past, we would fail to explain to people why the historic fact of Jesus' incarnation is good news at the present moment. See, here's the thing. You might have thought, why are we doing an Advent series? It's the day after Christmas. Some of you have already popped your Christmas blow-ups in the yard. Some of you have already burnt the tree, Grinches. Um, Some of you have already began just taking your wife's beautiful golden Christmas heirlooms and begin dumping it into the tub to put away into the attic. So why not move beyond Christmas? Why are we still talking about the incarnation the day after Christmas? Here's the thing. The incarnation wasn't just good for once. It isn't just the past reality. It has ongoing ramifications. We have to understand why it is good news that Jesus not just became a man, but why Jesus is still a man. Have you ever thought about that concept just for a moment? You know, we've been asking the question, why was it necessary for God's son to become a man? And in that, we were trying to dive into the depths of the Advent feeling. We were wanting to look at Jesus, the baby of the manger, and why was it that infinite God became a finite man. But let's just take a step forward and let's prepare for the next year and ask the question, why is the, how is the fact that God's son is still a man at this very moment? Good news for us in 2022. I think we should think carefully about this. Why would Jesus continue to be a flesh and blood man after his death and resurrection? Why not put away his humanity the moment the mission was accomplished, right? He died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. Why not say, all right, I'm done with all this finite human stuff. This flesh is itchy. I hate hair. Why not just, not to speak blasphemous, but why didn't Jesus just dump off his humanity and become fully God rather than being fully God and fully man at this moment? I hope you know that now that the Son of God has become a man, he never intends to stop being a human. Never again will he be inhuman. He will always be a human from here on out. From his birth to his death, from his death to his resurrection, from his resurrection to his present exaltation, Jesus, the perfect God, man, who reigns in heaven, is at this very moment an incarnate man with hands, eyes, nose, mouth, hair. He is still very much a man. 
Rarely do we allow our thoughts to really think of the flesh and blood Jesus at the right hand of God, do we? We tend to think of some transcendent spiritual being, but we rarely think about Jesus, the man. Could reach out, touch his hand kind of man. Could be embraced kind of man. Rarely do we think those thoughts. I think on some level we're afraid of blaspheming against him, making him too human. But the reality is in, in, in not accepting and adoring his humanity, we are actually blaspheming because he's not just God. He is God, man. Those two truths have to stand fully together that he is 100% God and 100% man. Not 50% God, not 50% man, not a demigod, not just some hybrid God. He is fully God and fully man. And never again should we ever forget that he is at this moment fully man in his full divineness. Now, this should be good news to us. Yes, Jesus became a man, but he is still a man, and he reigns as both God and man. And because of that, he is able, present, and perfect to help us in our times of trouble. As we will see in this final installment of our Advent series, the Son of God became a man in order to become our priest and our propitiation. And it is in this present ministry as our high priest that Jesus is able to help us in our weaknesses and our struggles. The fact that Jesus, the man, sits in heaven reigning with God's divine power at this moment, both God and man, is able to help us at this present moment. As a refresher, the author of Hebrews has been explaining why it was necessary for the Son of God to become a man. In doing so... His hope is to encourage his readers to see that they have not made a mistake in following the man, Jesus. You can imagine Jewish people beginning to wonder, did we make a mistake? It's led to all kinds of suffering. It's led to imprisonment. It's led to martyrdom. It's led to uh, marginality in society. Was it worth it? Did we make a mistake following this man? But as it is, his incarnation and his subsequent suffering were essential components. They simply could not have been without those components in order to accomplish God's redemptive plan that was to come through the Messiah. The son had to become a man. And we've already seen, so that all things would be subjected under him, for it was to man that God granted dominion of all the earth, of all creation. Second, he had to take on flesh in order to suffer. Can't suffer without flesh and blood. And in suffer, he was able to sanctify his people for worship. Also, without flesh, how would he die? And without his death, how would the devil's power over death be defeated? To such a point that we would be freed from our language and captivity. All these things were necessary. Therefore, him becoming a flesh and blood man was absolutely necessary. Might befuddle our minds, might confuse our thoughts. We may not be able to understand the logic and the ability and the mystery of it all, but it stands to reason that God has made such a plan that his son had to come in flesh. There was no other way. Hebrews 2.16 carries the argument for Jesus' incarnation further, stating this, for surely it is not 
angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, in this, I think we find one of the most encouraging aspects of the author's logic. By being a man, Jesus helps the seed of Abraham, the children of God. And I think it's important to pay attention to the verb tenses in the Bible, don't you? I mean, listen to what he says. He doesn't use the past tense form of help. For example, he helped the offspring of Abraham. He doesn't use a subjunctive form so that he might help or could help or may help the sons of Abraham. He uses the present tense of the verb. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, just in the progression of thought, the author of Hebrews is writing in a time when Jesus has already come, he has already died, he has already risen again, and he has been exalted to the right hand of God. And yet he can, in full conscience, use the present tense verb, helps. He helps, meaning that after he was exalted, he didn't stop helping. He is still, at this moment, helping. He helps his people. You know, some people are so foolish to speak of the exalted Jesus as if he's a currently inactive Lord who is reigning over his church in absentia. In other words, he's so high, he's so exalted that if we were to follow this logic, it's only in his life and ministry here on earth that we saw him moved with compassion by the crowds. He was moved to tears when he saw Mary and Martha's grief. He was moved by love uh, to touch the leper and make him clean. Now that he's in heaven, though, he's beyond all those human emotions and actions, right? He, He didn't feel compassion anymore. What a gooey, nasty human emotion is that? He doesn't feel pity anymore for his people, right? He doesn't have a little tear at the back of his voice when he hears his people languish and call out to him, right? Surely he's beyond all of that. He's far distant now that he is the exalted man at God's right hand, that he cannot care about his people's problems, struggles, concerns. Now that he reigns on high, he's completely different. That gentle and lowly Jesus that reached out his hand and touched the leper, that Jesus that spoke so softly to the Samaritan woman, surely that was just good for the 33 years he was here, but not now. My friends, the author of Hebrews rejects that idea. Simply not true. Can I just be, be careful, warn you to be careful of the heresy of changing Jesus' identity. That sometimes when we, when we do such things, we, we make him different than he actually is. Instead of worshiping the God that is, the God-man that reigns. Though he's been exalted to the divine throne, he has not become any less of the human that he was. Just as he did not put off any of his divinity, you see, he was still the same omniscient, he was still the same eternal, the same gracious, the same merciful, the same just, the same holy God that he always was when he took on flesh. He did not put away any of his divine attributes. He only put away the right to use them for himself in moments of suffering. He was still very much eternal God when he became a man. Why then do we think that he became less human now that he sits enthroned with God? 
He's not less human than he was. He's not less compassionate. Do you think it's possible that we have an exalted Jesus that still looks at Samaritan women with compassion and tears in his eyes? Do we still have a Jesus that longs to reach out his hand and touch the isolated and the marginalized? Do we still have a Jesus that looks at those angry mobs running through the street and have his heart moved to compassion for them because they're without a shepherd? He hasn't changed. He's the same gentle and lowly and all-powerful God that he is. Even as a man at the right-hand throne of God. You may not now see him, but you can know his presence by faith. Because Jesus is God, his promise to never leave us, even until the end of the age, wasn't just a mere figure of speech. It wasn't an empty promise. You know, when Jesus said that in Matthew 28, behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age, we sometimes are like, yeah, 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 I get it. You're with us in spirit, Jesus. No, it wasn't a mere figure of speech. He meant it. Behold, I am with you. My friends, Jesus is high and exalted in heaven. And yet, just like we cannot understand how infinite God can be wrapped in the finite flesh of a baby, we cannot understand how Jesus in all of his exaltation and his highness, that he can still be with us. We can't simply understand that. He is with his people. He hasn't left us to ourselves. And he is at this moment helping his people through their struggles. We must be careful in our view of the exalted Jesus not to change him into something he is not. Exalted and transcendent though he is, he is relational and eminent just as he was on earth. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not change the immutable God. He is the sovereign and powerful God. He has always been since before time dawned. Even now, as he wears the flesh of humanity, he is the same God. You know, Psalm 46.1 proclaims this truth. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. He's took on flesh to show us that he is indeed a very present help in trouble. And now that he is exalted and seated and reigning at the right hand of God, he is ever so much more so our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. His heart is gentle and lowly for you. God of power, lion of Judah, who comes to you like a lamb in gentleness and loneliness in your trouble. My friends, think about the way we shame ourselves so often. I think we have a right to be ashamed of our sin. I, I want to give us that right to say that our sin is terrible and bad and displeases God. But can we not make Jesus into an abusive husband? Please, for just a moment. Can we not make Jesus into a disappointed father whose standards we know we never reach? Can we not make Jesus into some bully big brother who flouts his perfection in the face of our imperfection? He doesn't do that to us, now does he? 
in all of the perfection that he has, in all of his mightiness, in all of his power, in all of his glory, he still has a heart that beats and loves you. We're not changing the gospel. I know that there's so many people. What about his justice? What about his judgment? What about his holiness? What about this? Those things are very much true. But again, do not change a mutable God. He is not made up of parts. He is holy God who is love. Those things go together, necessarily so. By saying that God is a God of love and that Jesus is gentle and lowly in no way diminishes that he is holy and that he will bring wrath on sin. It does, however, give you freedom to see the gentleness and lowliness of his heart for you to bask in the freedom that he's given. Do not build a wall that Christ tore down. Oh, holy God must judge sinners. Yes, he must, but he hasn't judged you. And he won't judge you because he judged Christ. Holy God must judge sin. And in that judging of sin, he also promises to forgive sinners. He's holy and just and faithful. All these things merge together in Christ. You want to see the angry, wrathful, holy God? Look at the bloody Jesus that we have on the cross. You want to see the gracious, merciful, loving, sweet, gentle that we, God that we have? Look at the bloody Jesus on the cross. These two things must go together. They do not sacrifice each other on the altar. Just want to, for the, for the moment, we're people who languish under our own shame and our own burdens. And sometimes we think Jesus is completely different. How often do we have a false and unbiblical perspective of Jesus? I mean, sometimes we speak only of his love and never of his holiness. Other times we speak only of his holiness and never of his love. But I think for people who are Bible-centered Christians, that oftentimes we tend to drift more to that other side. We only speak of holiness, never of gentleness and love. We're afraid of making Jesus too human. right? Well, you couldn't make him too God, could you? Don't think you can make him too human. (laughs) There's only one aspect that he's not like a human. He no longer dies and he's not sinful. As long as you don't say any of those things, you're not going to make him too human. Does Jesus' heart still feel sad about things? Does Jesus' heart still feel all the emotion, the happiness when he sees people, joy? Does he feel human emotions? He must. God made them. God made emotions for humanity. And in taking on humanity, Jesus has become like us in every respect. Even though he reigns in all power and in all exaltation. My friends, we often don't like it when people start preaching sermons like this. I don't know why. This is good news for us. There's no sacrificing holiness and divinity and power and justice here. It's just a reminder that don't break God in half. Don't rend him into parts. Remember all the other things he says. What do you think it means when it says God is love? Not God is loving. Not God has love. Not God shows love. God is love. 
we have to let that stand as it is without trying to figure out, okay, now how, you know, okay, God is love. How do we pour in wrath in this? How do we pour in justice in this? My friends, they stand together. God is God. That's why God told Moses, I am who I am. You you just can't, you can't break him up in the parts. He's just God. Loving, just, wrathful. And if you make him any less wrathful than he is, you have committed blasphemy. If you make him any less loving than he is, you have committed blasphemy. Do not divide God in parts. Make sense? All right. That was just a soapbox. You know, sometimes when we change Jesus into being this high and holy only kind of God exalted on the throne, we forget about the gentle and lowliness that allows us to come to the throne. Think about the way this works out in our, in our daily life. We hesitate to pray, don't we? If we can just be honest, there's many of us that hesitate to pray. And even if we do pray, we're very careful about what we pray. Surely he would not concern himself about the trivial matters, right? Surely he wouldn't care that, you know, we've got these minor, these seemingly minor things going on. So what we do is we, we, tend to, we tend to act as if we can't bring these things to God, Jesus, sitting on the throne, because he's so high and holy, surely he's not concerned about that thing. Surely he's far beyond all that for us. And the result is, is that we tend to languish alone in our grief and anxiety because we think Jesus doesn't care. And yet, such a distant and uncompassionate Jesus is not the Jesus who sits at the right hand of God. To view him as a distant and cold Lord is pure fiction and fails to see him as he really is. My friends, the most appropriate thing for you to do when you're asking, like the Bereans, is this true in Scripture? When you find that it's true, that God is just as loving, lowly, and gentle as he ever was, as the man Jesus Christ sits at the right-hand throne of God, he's just as holy and high and wrathful and just as he ever was, the best thing to do is for us to say, I was wrong, I repent, rather than trying to defend why our perfect view of Jesus was right in the first place, Right? How often do we have to come to Jesus and come to the word of God and allow the word to humble us? We thought we had him figured out. Man, 2020, 2021, I mean, books are releasing. People are, are being on best-selling list for how their description of God goes and people are blasting them and people are doing this and people are doing that and people are speaking so definitively about God. I have yet to hear many people say, you know what? I came to scripture and realized my view was wrong. Can I just self-confess here for a moment? I'm a legalist. I was raised in a church for 11 years of my childhood that taught me that Jesus rolled his eyes every time his disciples came around. That Jesus looks at us poor, pathetic sinners and just shakes his head from the throne. Never match. And I died to save you. I mean, the preacher would literally say things like this from the pulpit. And I died to save you. And look at what you've done. I just bear the shame. Any kind of sexual immorality, bear the shame. Oh, I can't come to Jesus now. 
There was actually a point in time that I believed I needed to wait three or four days to pray again after a sin. Because I felt like time heals all wounds, right? So maybe, you know, people get into an argument and they separate for a period of time, things cool off, and then maybe they come back together. I viewed Jesus that way. My friends, I still view Jesus that way from time to time. I fall, I fall flat on my face. I say something to my wife I shouldn't say. I respond to my kids in anger and impatience. I come to the pulpit with pride and a big chest and a big head. And then when I come to realize my sin, then I think, oh, I shouldn't, I I can't. I can't even go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man like Peter. And yet nothing would be further from Jesus's mind and heart to do. He knows you're not worthy. But it's not about your worthiness at all. When you get to heaven, it will not be in your righteousness that you stand. There's a reason his name is Jehovah to scan you. God, my righteousness. Because we don't have righteousness. So if he looks at you now after your sin, just thinks, no, we need some time. Come back on Tuesday. If Jesus does that, then he's completely different than what the whole Bible says he is, which makes him a liar. Let us not make Jesus a liar. He doesn't lie. He's gentle, lowly, loving, kind, accepting, heart out for you, heart beating for you, on fire for you, loving you, holding you. When you cannot hold yourself. Friends, this is Jesus. There's a reason why Peter felt the need to tell us about more about this exalted Jesus. And there's a reason that he tells us, humble yourselves. You see, some of these things that we view Jesus as may be stemming from our own pride. That we can't pray certain things to Jesus. We can't come to Jesus after a certain moment of time after we've sinned. Some of that may actually reveal a self-righteousness that we refuse to confess. Peter looks at, Peter writes to his people who are suffering in exile. Does Jesus care that they're suffering? Does Jesus care that their lives are on the line? Does Jesus care that their house might be found out? Does Jesus care that they are uh, suffering from cancer? Humble yourselves, therefore. That's an interesting exhortation, isn't it? In the midst of talking to these suffering people about approaching Jesus, the first exhortation that he would give them is to humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We know that passage pretty well, right? 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself. I mean, don't be so high and mighty to think that you've got God right in this view. Don't think that you could ever do anything. There's a meme out right now that's like, do you need Jesus for everything? Literally, you need Jesus to go to Walmart, right? That, that meme that's out, you literally do need Jesus for everything. And it takes humility to recognize that. But how do we live in this humanity, this humility? Peter follows in the very next verse, 1 Peter 5 through 7, Casting all your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. That's just work the logic backwards. What if I don't 
cast my cares upon him? What if I don't take all my anxieties to him, knowing that he cares for me? Well, the exhortation in 5.6 would imply that I'm prideful. So the result would be humble yourself and humble yourself by casting all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares. Cares. He didn't give any kind of nuances on what Jesus cares about. He simply says he cares for you. My friends, can you just bask in the moment right now that there is a flesh and blood man who's fully God sitting at the right hand of God right now looking on you in absolute love. As his people, those who have trusted in him, he loves you. Move to compassion for you. Here's the groan in the middle of the night when you're afraid. Even when you think he doesn't want to hear it, he's already heard it because his ear is open to it. You may think, I can't take it to him. He's already there seeing it because he cares that much. And all this just coming from the author's reminder, the author of Hebrews telling us that Jesus is helping his people. Just that one present tense verb tells us everything we need to know about what Jesus' heart for us is right now. What is Jesus doing on the throne? What is, how does Jesus occupy his time in the throne room of God? Well, he helps the children of Abraham. Helps, present tense. He's not the distant, cold, forgotten Lord that we have made him out to be. And we should repent of any foolish thoughts like that. Now, in order to help the sons and daughters of Abraham, the son had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That phrase, in every respect, is important. Namely, it tells us that Jesus took on every aspect of humanity, again, except for sin. He is like us in every respect, except for that. He comes back and makes that qualification in Hebrews chapter 4, that he's been tempted in every way that we have been, but has never fallen to sin, never fallen to temptation. So he's been made like us in every respect. That means his physical limitations, the need to sleep, the need to eat, the need to drink, the pain of a stub toe, even temptations and all that was his experience when he was here on earth. He no longer needs to sleep, no longer needs to eat and drink. He's perfect in the presence of God, but he became like us in every respect at that moment. He drank the deep dregs of human suffering and weakness in order to help us. You know, God didn't send aid from a distance. He came in close, came in among us in order to save us. No other faith in all the world teaches this truth. There's a lot of Christians believing in an Islamic God who never moves his hand to help them who never comes down to man's plan. You see, there's other gods who say that you have to ascend the steep mountain of morality and sacrifice to reach them. Keep giving, keep giving, keep trying, and maybe someday. There's other gods who simply don't give you any hope at all. They just say, you're never going to do it. You're always going to be distant from me. You're never going to live with me. 
The Muslims, as much as they love Allah, Allah never dwells with man. You die as a faithful Muslim, you go to paradise. God lives way above paradise. Never with men. We Christians, on the other hand, teach the humbling truth that God came down to us. He became like us in every respect. Now, the author explains that in being made like the children of Abraham, he was also able to become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the people's link to God. He ensured that the covenantal link between holy God and sinful people remained strong, namely through the sacrifices and through the services in the temple. You can read Leviticus 16 to see how this worked. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The high priest was the only one allowed to enter the holy places. And when he entered, he would sprinkle the blood of, of a innocent sacrifice on what was called the mercy seat, which was the lid of the covenant, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So he'd sprinkle that blood. And when that blood hit the mercy seat, the people's sins were forgiven. And yet the payment for sin was paid. Death was required. Death was given. Blood was sprinkled. Forgiveness came. That was all considered propitiation, atonement, literally being made at one with God. Okay. Reconciliation would be another good word, but reconciliation comes, must come in a way that satisfies God's justice and our need for forgiveness. Hebrews says that Jesus has done this very same thing, but in an even more profound and permanent way. He, as the high priest, has entered the holy places. He sprinkled the mercy seat, the real mercy seat that's in heaven, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own perfect blood. You can read that in Hebrews chapter nine. Because Jesus is both the priest and the perfect sacrifice, he has won our permanent propitiation, our permanent atonement. God's justice has been forever satisfied for those who trust in Jesus. They will never again face the wrath and punishment of sin. Anything from here on out might be discipline, might be God correcting us, but it is not wrath. And judgment. Jesus has swallowed up all the judgment that belonged to us. This means that because Jesus himself is our propitiation, our atonement, it's not a lamb, it's not a goat, it's not a bull, it's a man, Jesus, who is now raised and exalted at the right hand of God. Ephesians says that he too has, we too have been raised up with him. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, that when says that when Jesus was raised, we too have been seated. He uses a weird past tense form of the verb there. We too have been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus promised that where he is, so shall we be, right? In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, then I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Ephesians 1 says, it's happened. God raised him and exalted him, and we've been raised and seated together with Christ. Now, how can we be sure that we have a permanent place in the presence of God then? How do we know that God's heart to us isn't going to change, that the plan isn't going to change, or that Jesus will not change his mind and abandon us in the future, right? We, we deal with this at a human level. Has anyone ever let you down? Has anyone ever not done what they told you they would do? 
Has anyone ever promised to do something and then come back later only to say, I changed my mind? Has anyone held good feelings about you and loved you at one moment only the next morning to say, never mind, I've changed? We face that all the time, don't we? Human people are fickle. They're not all that reliable. So what makes the man Jesus Christ any more reliable than any other man? To this point, the author gives us a number of adjectives to help us understand who Jesus is and what his attitude is to us. Namely, he is a merciful and faithful high priest. He is merciful, meaning that his heart is drawn to us in our struggles. Merciful Jesus. He is merciful Jesus to us. As mentioned before, when Jesus saw the shepherdless crowds, he was moved to compassion. Jesus's compassionate heart has not changed. My friends, you may think you're enough man to receive the consequences of your sin, but if God were to mark iniquities, who could stand? Jesus must be merciful to you, and you can never stand to receive the punishment for your sin. He is merciful to you. He himself described himself as gentle and lowly, holy and righteous, though he be. Holy and righteous does not cancel out his love and his mercy and his compassion. Still sees us very much in that way. Hebrews 4 says that he is able, or it says better yet, we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses and to give us confidence to come to him where we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. For those who trust in Jesus, for those who have humbled themselves, repented of sin, have come to him for salvation, you must know that his heart is one of complete, absolute, resolute, unchanging, unalterable mercy. Man, that's probably the greatest news you can hear all year. Does it make your sin okay? Absolutely not. Is God going to discipline you out of your sin? Absolutely. The same way that I discipline my children when they do something atrociously wrong in our house. But it never changes my heart to them. Never could. How does it feel to know that Jesus' heart of mercy will never change for you? That he won't suddenly say, that's it. I'm done with this. You and your stupid addictions, we're over. How does it feel that Jesus will never, ever, ever say that? That's it. You've done it for the final time. What if he said that to Peter? Peter, you've forsaken me. You betrayed me. I'll restore you. And then later in Galatians, Peter's so stupid to to blasphemy the Holy Spirit, to to actually commit a heresy by not walking in the gospel. When, When James's men come around, Peter, Peter, restored Peter, who sees the resurrected Jesus, who's been given great grace, walks away from the Gentiles because he's embarrassed to be with them. If I were Jesus, I'd be like, man, we've been through this once. You left me once. And you did it again? Are you kidding me? That would be me. Let me just tell you real clearly from the pulpit, that's not Jesus. And by God's grace, my feelings of tor- towards sinners are not the same 
is what Jesus' feelings towards sinners are. Good news for me. I will probably do something on the way home to Oklahoma to celebrate Christmas today. We've got to get on I-35. I'm dreading this. I've been praying. I fasted from a couple of cookies last night (laughs) to prepare my heart for the spiritual warfare that's to come driving north on I-35 in Oklahoma. Because in my legalistic mind, I'm like, okay, Jesus, I, I prepared last time and you saw how that worked out. I know I might be doing it again. I'm going to try not to. And yet, as much as I can rely on his grace, there's going to be a time I let it all down. But he won't let me down. When I'm empty, he is still very much full of mercy and grace. I may be helpless, and yet he comes back every single time and helps. The author says that he is faithful. So he describes him as merciful, right? That's a great adjective, right? Merciful. Heart never changing. He is merciful high priest. So he didn't say merciful for now. He just, this is who he is. He's a merciful high priest. But he goes one step further. He's faithful. Faithful. Faithful describes the permanence and continuation of his high priestly ministry. A faithful person does not change on a whim, nor are they unpredictable and sporadic in their commitments. In fact, not even death itself is able to change Jesus from being a faithful high priest. Think about the wonder and grace that Jesus is our eternal high priest. He doesn't have to come up for re-election. He just is the high priest forever and ever. We don't have to hope who's coming after him. Can we, can we make sure that the guy that comes after him will be as good as he was? Never have to worry about that, about Jesus ever. Eternal high priest. Because he's eternal, we never need to worry about whether we will have an advocate tomorrow. You will have an advocate in heaven seated at the right throne of heaven, mediating for you tomorrow, next Tuesday, in December 2023, all the way until you die and for eternity thereafter. He is faithful. The problem with putting our trust in normal men is that we, they ultimately fail us. They either leave us lacking, they change their promises, they hoodwink us, or they just simply die. They just simply die. Husbands die. Fathers die. Mothers, friends, husbands, wives, colleagues, confidants, compadres they all eventually die, don't they? It's the pesky reality of it. Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death, from continuing in their office. There's that peskiness again. High priests die. But... He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
Write it down. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. He always lives to make intercession. There will never, ever, 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 ever be a moment that he stops living and thereby stops interceding for you. He is faithful forever and ever, longer than you live, into your eternity forever. He'll always be your high priest. Now think of what that means, man. Jesus Christ is our proof of residence in heaven. Jesus Christ is our guarantee that we have a claim into the presence of God. Now in that, think of how sweetly and how confidently that you can sing these words. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Let me just tell you something. If Jesus could be dethroned and forced out of heaven, you and I would have reason to worry. But he's God. That's never going to happen. He will never be dethroned and forced out of heaven. And so your right and claim to come into the presence of God will never be taken away. He is merciful and faithful, and therefore our place in the presence of God is permanent, even when we don't deserve it. You're going to sin atrociously in 2022. You're going to fail. Can I, just, can I just pop all your resolutions You are a failure as a human being. All of us are. Not very gushy and encouraging. I'm sorry. I've learned to accept it for myself, you know? Doesn't mean I don't try, you know? At the same moment, just to realize like, man, 2022, I'm going to make some real big foibles. I'm really going to buy the farm on some things. And yet... No matter when that happens, Jesus is faithful. And I have a place in God's presence. Now, what does this mean for you? We're going to end with this. Because he is faithful, because he is our God and human high priest, he is able to help us in our present struggles and sufferings. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We mentioned on Friday night that in Exodus, we have a God who sees, who hears, and who knows what we go through. In Jesus, we have a God who sees, who hears, who knows, and who has felt, who has experienced all the things that we have gone through. He is a God who has experiential suffering. Now, I think in in context, this word temptation is very broad. It could mean trial of any kind of form. could mean temptation to sin. So it's, it's broad with lots of different caveats. But I think in context, it's saying that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer so badly that you want to give up, that you want to walk away. I, I think in, that, in this moment, it's dealing with sin and suffering mingled together. The hardships and the temptation, just the difficulties of being a Christian. Jesus knows what those are like. You know, it was when Jesus was weak that Satan came to the wilderness. When Jesus was hungry, that he came and said, hey, why don't you turn these stones to bread? 
Jesus, why do you have to go through humiliation? Why not just throw yourself off the temple pinnacle and show everybody who you are all at once? Why use the cross to earn dominion over everything when just a simple little bow of the knee to me will solidify it all? No need to bleed. No need to wear the crown. He's been tempted to look at his suffering and to be tempted by sin. He's been tempted by the strongest way possible. By Satan himself. You know, Satan's not omnipresent, right? He can't be everywhere at once. When we say, well, the devil made me do it. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, whatever. You know, I, I just think, you know, when, when we think of temptation, Satan can't be everywhere at once, right? It's a divine attribute to be omnipresent. You know what the chances are of me having ever been tempted by Satan himself? I've probably been given one of his piddly little demons who are in training. And I fall to that. God forbid if Satan ever showed up into the room. Jesus was tempted by the archdemon himself. The captain of hell. The God of this world. He he was tempted by him. You and I have felt temptation. He felt temptation. There's a difference. Every respect. Tempted by the original serpent himself. He was able to make happy and perfect and holy Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Jesus faced him. You and I probably have never faced him. He faced him and won. He beat the captain so he can help us win in our temptation. My friends, go to him. He is not so high and mighty that he doesn't care for you. Are you struggling with pornography this year? Let's just, let's just ask it openly as a church. Are you struggling with pornography? Are you struggling with anger? Do you throw fists when you shouldn't? Do you throw words when you shouldn't? Are you struggling with some kind of form of alcoholism or drugs? Are you struggling with pride? Are you being tempted to be a self-exalter? Are you being tempted to judge others? Are you being tempted with these bad habits of just being sinful? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties upon him, coming to his throne in confidence where you will find mercy and grace in time of need. I can't come. I got too angry last night. You can still come. He died for that anger. In fact, by you not coming, you're reversing all the work that he did. It's the moment when you failed that you should come. The moment you fail that you should pray. The moment that the image pops up on the computer, that your knee should hit the floor. That's the only place you will receive mercy and grace in time of need. Only place. Don't wait. Go right at the moment. Flee, run, cling, come in crying. I just remember, you know, my children, there's a moment that there's a dog out in the yard. And I've talked to my son about not being afraid of, you know, animals and, you know, trying to help him. You know, he's got a phobia of some, some, some sort of this. So remember, there's a little dog in the yard that came yapping into the yard. 
My son, I won't tell you which one because I've got three of them. Um, my son lost his mind and just lost all ability to control his tears, his emotions. He came in screaming and weeping and crying. How unloving would it have been for me to shape up? What's your problem? That little thing? Really? No, my knees hit the floor. My arms were open. I cried with him. We went and faced the dog together. We just sat there and hugged, and he's just weeping with this irrational fear of a chihuahua. But it didn't matter how small the dog was and how ugly it was, my heart hurt for him. Man, I would have fished a Rottweiler for him at that moment. My son needed to know that he had a place where he could lose his ever-loving mind and cling and climb and cry and weep and scream in terror and have a big, strong dad who would hold him and carry him and chase the chihuahua out of the yard. My friends, Jesus is all that and more. Lose your ever-loving mind to come to his throne. Screaming, clinging, weeping, grasping. Shout out if you have to right there in the room. God help me. That is a prayer. Go to the throne where you will receive mercy and grace in time of need. 2020 is on the way. Chihuahua though it be, run to the throne where you will find open arms to help you. Let's pray. Father God, we end this year, we end this season, Father, this Advent series, thanking you that Jesus took on flesh to help us and that he is still helping us in our time of need. Exalted as he is on, the right, on your right hand, he is not distant from us, but he is still a very present help in time of trouble. Our refuge and strength, our savior who is compassionate, gentle and lowly and kind, all powerful though he be. Thank you, God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.